think about safe and sustainable space, that's a very meaty, big problem to tackle. And so what, what we do is kind of break it down into three slightly more manageable chunks, which is one, technology. So how can we build spacecraft or do things in space to be able to mitigate space debris and, and operate in space in a more sustainable way? At the same time, there's, there's the policy piece as well, right? So there's no good having great technology if you don't have, you know, the right regulations enforcing it, ensuring that space is used sustainably, creating that, you know, more responsible culture across the space industry. So bringing everyone together for the ride and then the third piece is the business piece because again there's no good having great technology if no one wants to buy it so you've really got to convince satellite operators and others of, of the value of you know the technology that you're developing in order to create that safe and sustainable environment um, so those are kind of the three three themes that we kind of look at in terms of AstroScale and what we're doing that was harriet an innovator in the space industry who started her career in finance and eventually pivoted and did her master's in planetary sciences at Caltech. She's the chair of the Space Generation Advisory Council, as well as head of business development at Astroscale, a private company whose mission it is to ensure the safe and sustainable development of space. Today's convo covers how she switched industries and found a career working for what she's most passionate about, the final frontier. We hope you all enjoy this episode, but before we get started, a reminder that we're looking for partners and sponsors on the Next Iteration podcast, so if you know anyone who might be a good fit, please reach out and message me or Damien on LinkedIn. Thank you. You are now listening to the Next Iteration podcast with your hosts Fuad and Damien. If you liked the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. We hope you enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. Of course. It's our pleasure. So let's go ahead and dive right into the conversation. So Harriet, I think at one point, every child has had dreams of becoming an astronaut or were at some point just completely enamored by the magical landscape that is space. And you kind of started your career off in finance, but at some point you were drawn back into space as you know, uh, just pursuing a career in that industry. I'm just curious, when and why did you make that change? Or was that something that was just always there? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that there's this great, I think it's a Carl Sagan quote where he says, you know, every child is born with an innate wonder of the universe. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, we beat it out of them as they grow older or something like that, right? And so um, I'd always loved like space and astronomy growing up. but to be completely honest, it wasn't something I realized I could do as a career. Um, I liked maths at school and say, so, okay, I'll study maths at university. That seems to be the thing that keeps as many doors open as possible. Um, and uh, when I went to university, uh, it was a very kind of, I guess, kind of finance focus in terms of the career opportunities you could do as a maths grad, right? And so um, I, I somewhat stumbled into the, the banking scene um, I enjoyed it, but didn't love it. I think that was, you know, I, I, you know, very much enjoyed the kind of day to day and was really lucky because I ended up, you know, getting the opportunity to go and live in New York for a year working at the Fed. And it was when I was moving to the US, I was like, okay, I don't know anyone here. I'm going to reinvent myself. I can take up whatever hobbies I've, you know, not had time for in the UK. And so I stumbled across an organization called the Planetary Society who had an outreach group in New York. Um, and we did a couple of events, you know, like, you know, one of those things where there's like a 
kind of like a science fair. You have a little booth, you talk to people about space. I was like, oh, this is really fun. You know, maybe I can keep this going when I go back to the UK. Um, and so I found some evening classes at a local university in astrophysics and thought, huh, actually, I really enjoy this. And the maths degree, maybe that is useful for this as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was kind of a bit of a turning point, realizing that actually there was a lot more I could do with my career and the space industry is much broader than I ever realized before. Um, and, and there was a kind of light bulb moment, I think, during that year where I thought, huh, I could... I could keep going in this banking career or I could stop now, pivot yeah. and try something else. And I haven't looked back since. That's amazing. Yeah. That That's a, that's a crazy pivot. How did you kind of go through that decision in your head? Cause I know there's like so many factors, you know, like salary, location, like job security, all that. Right. So how did you, how did you kind of go through that? Yeah, for sure. I, it's one of those things where in hindsight, it seems like there was a grand plan. At the time, there was no grand plan. It was- For sure, hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yeah. yeah, right? I was like, make it up as I go along. And like, you know, I'm like, oh yeah, actually, that kind of looked like it made sense now. Um, uh, but it, you know, to be completely honest, it took a lot of time. You know, it's not easy to change careers, particularly, um, I think a lot of it for me was like building up that confidence in myself that I had the skills that I could go and change careers. Um, and, and one of the good things was, you know, going back to school and going doing a master's in the US because that gave me one, the time to take a step back, just enjoy learning a new subject and getting familiar with a new field, um, but also gave me a bit more credibility to show that I had some experience or knowledge of this new industry that I was trying to get mm -hmm. into. Um, mm -hmm. So, so that was the kind of, I guess, my, my transition year, I guess I like to call it before coming sure. back to the UK. Mm -hmm. And Caltech has credibility in spades, I'm sure. So <laughs> oh, it was, <laughs> it was such an amazing place. Yeah. I, I, I loved it. Yeah. So Damien's yeah. actually doing his master's. I don't know if you have some questions to dive deep into that experience right now. Not necessarily into the master's, but I feel like just hearing um, that experience, it's something I feel like a lot of people can really resonate with because not even with just in space, but for something that hits a little closer to home for some of our listeners is like just the tech industry too, right? Like if you're coming from a non-traditional background and maybe that's not the case when you come from background in math, but just in general, it feels like these industries can be out of reach if you weren't not necessarily born into it, but if you didn't start in it, right? Mm -hmm. If you didn't build up the traditional background that takes you into it. With, so I'm sure the planetist planetary society really helped as well but maybe that's a good segue into SG, sgac as well so we talked to um our now previously your other co-chair so we won't yes. necessarily <laughs> yeah we won't necessarily dive too deep into it but just as a super quick refresher could you just um briefly run us through what sgac is and really how your time there empowered you like what kind of value did you really get out of there yeah, for sure. Oh, SGAC was a complete game changer for me. So uh, what it is, is it's, it's a global nonprofit that essentially supports students, young professionals connect to the wider space industry. Um, and we do that through events, scholarships, project groups, professional development. Right. And so I, I first got involved in SGAC. I was I think I was just I was working in, in the bank in New York and I was Googling space organizations. And I was thinking, oh, wouldn't it be really cool <laughs> if there was like a youth group that brought people together who were passionate about space? And mm -hmm. then SGAC popped up and I was like, right, Amazing. that's my group. Um, I applied to basically every vacancy they had, got rejected from every single one. Um, and, and then luckily tried again. 
uh, found a role um, and was lucky enough to get a scholarship to attend a conference in Colorado. And that event was just, uh, that was, going back to what I was saying before about the light bulb moment, I can probably mm-hmm. pinpoint it to that event because I turned up and there were just so many people who were so passionate about space, but exploring and pursuing that passion in such a variety of different ways that it really made me think, you know, there is no excuse for me not to try and follow this and explore what I want to do, right? Um, And, you know, it was at that time where I learned that space law was a thing and that there were people doing project management and marketing and, you know, all these different aspects of space that I hadn't really appreciated before. Um, And really, you know, the thing that I think stands out about SJC is the people you get to meet, you know, one, the exposure to industry leaders and veterans, but also the other, you know, students, young professionals who are doing incredible things and creating that amazing sense of community. Yeah. Oh, sorry. So I'm just racing out in front of my house. Yeah. And these organizations are incredible, right? Because like you said, it exposes you to so many different subdomains that exist under like this overarching mission that is like advancing space. And I think it's so unique working in that industry because it feels like everyone has this common why that really motivates them and drives their actions right which is incredible because to say that you know you can tell your grandkids one day you know I was helping further the space industry you know back maybe like by the time our grandkids around we'll be a interplanetary species already but so it'll be crazy to see (laughs) yeah fingers crossed we'll be pioneers in those during those times right and you kind of put forth your own initiative to start a bit of this uh, community building within the industry with the London Space Network. So how was that experience? And like, how, how do you really start to gain traction there? How do you get people excited about it? Yeah, of course. So, um, oh, that was a lot of fun. It feels like a distant memory with COVID. Obviously, we haven't been doing <laughs> person events for a little while. Um, but yeah, so that was something that um, we set up with a couple of friends when I came back to the UK and, you know, I'd come from LA, which is this incredible melting pot of different areas of the space industry. You know, you've got JPL, you've got startups, you've got the big aerospace primes. Um, and so when I came back to the UK, I was thinking, oh, you know, we'd love to have that sense of community in the UK space scene as well. And so um, myself, uh, Mani Shah and Nushama, we set up a monthly, we were like, huh, let's just meet in a pub. And if it's just us three, then we'll still have a fun time. Um, and uh, we started to get a lot of interest. You know, people, people turned up, people wanted to, you know, get together and, you know, very informally just get to know other people in the space industry. Um, and it quite quickly grew to, you know, kind of 80 plus people turning up at the pub at once. And we we're like, it's oh. a very crowded pub. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was just like, you know, such a, oh gosh, honestly, such a distant memory now. I can't wait to go back. But it was yeah. just um, really nice to kind of, you know, bring people together in a kind of informal way, but just try and, you know, um, create more of those connections and sense of community. Um, and, and yeah, it was, it was really growing before, you know the world changed Uh, so how has it shifted with online do you still have online meetups and things like that or yeah so you know what we did organize one online meetup um 
which was fun. Uh, but but to be honest, there's been some other organizations that have done a fantastic job of really keeping that momentum going during the lockdown. Um, so we've kind of, you know, left left it to to other organizations who frankly have done a better job on online events than we sure. did. So <laughs> yeah, why create the real recreate the wheel, right? If it's if it's doing well with another organization, mm-hmm. there's no need to buy hats, right? So that, that's yeah. awesome. For those of us who are uninitiated, I think that, you know, so I'm, I'm working at SpaceX um, starting next week. Um, and Congratulations. so thank you. Thank you. Very excited. But I feel like I have a very, very Amerocentric worldview of space travel, right? Uh, you know, Neil Armstrong, like all, all that sort of stuff. Um, but I don't really have a knowledge of like the international nature of space. So for those of us who are uninitiated, most of our listeners are actually in North America. Give us a brief overview of like how international space is and like, especially in the UK and in the EU, like what are, what are some of the main organizations and efforts that are happening? Yeah, sure thing. So I think that's one of the things that I really love about the Space Generation Advisory Council is because it really does make me zoom out and see that global perspective of space um, because we have, uh, members in over 150 countries so it's like that real you know global perspective and it really shows you the um, you know the diversity across the global space industry and also shows you know the strengths and challenges that different regions face in terms of you know growing the space industry in their particular regions so you know in terms of the UK um, a lot of it. Well, so we have a UK space agency, um, somewhat smaller than NASA, um, as you can imagine. Sure. Smaller budget. Uh, it's really <laughs> more. <laughs> well, yeah, by definition, right? Um, it's really more focused on, I guess, kind of trying to facilitate the space industry rather than necessarily funding everything itself. And then the UK feeds into the European Space Agency as well. So we're still in ESA, even though we're not in the EU. Um, so we have a lot of you know, collaborations with European partners as well through, through the European Space Agency. Um, and then, you know, kind of thinking more globally, um, you know, what, what's been really exciting to see through SGAC has been the growth of, you know, a whole host of countries that have in the last few years set up their own space agencies for the first time and are looking at their own space policies and and strategies and programs um, and and really seeing the growth and the relevance of the space space industry to emerging countries and regions as much as those kind of more well-established traditional space players. Definitely. And I think that's key to keep in mind as we, move to a safe and sustainable development of space, right? You want to be a democratic, um, you know, organization and you want to really take into account different worldviews because I think, especially as Americans, we have a very specific way of looking at the world sometimes, you know, the American dream and and uh, capitalism and all that. Um, and I think that's very valuable and it's provided some very important things to the space industry with privatization and things like that. But at the same time, I think it's really, really important to take into account those worldviews. So Kudos to you for driving that and also, you know, trying to take in those global perspectives as well. Uh, so that brings me to, I guess, my next question. Uh, so I was looking up Asteriscale and I was uh, absolutely fascinated by the work they do, but rewinding a bit to, to I guess, the mission statement of Asteriscale, what does the safe and sustainable development of space entail? What are some of the most important problems in safety and sustainability for, for space? Oh, that's a great question. Um, uh, so really, the, the way we see it, we kind of break it down into three core components, right? You know, because when we think about safe and sustainable space, that's a very meaty, big problem to tackle. You know, there's a lot of different For ways sure. you could slice it up. And so what, what we do is kind of break it down into three slightly more manageable chunks, which is one, 
you know, technology. So how can we build spacecraft or do things in space um, to, to be able to mitigate space debris and, and operate in space in a more sustainable way? So there's the technology piece. And, and that's like a huge piece of, of what we're trying to do, right? Um, at the same time, there's, there's the policy piece as well, right? So there's no, there's no good having great technology if you don't have, you know, the right regulations enforcing it, ensuring that space is used sustainably, and all creating that, you know, more responsible culture across the space industry. So bringing everyone together for the right. Um, and then the third piece is the business piece, because again, there's no good having great technology if no one wants to buy it. So you've really got to convince, you know, satellite operators and others of, of the value of, you know, the technology that you're developing in order to create that safe and sustainable environment. Um, so those are kind of the three, uh, three themes that we kind of look at in terms of AstroScale and what we're doing. Yeah. And it strikes me that within this industry, you know, there's oh, a little yeah. more skin in the game required to really thrive because you can't, so the point I'm trying to get at here is that uh, if you're just like a, like at home kind of entrepreneur, you're building a product, you know, some people just say like the marketing is just the most important aspect of that. Right. In fact, even if your product isn't all that amazing, because, you know, usually costs are lower, people can buy into it. If it looks, if it looks good. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you're working with bigger players in the industry like this, like you really have to ensure that it's not just your marketing. It's also that your product is sound. Mm-hmm. and how like what are what are the safeguards there like in place to ensure that what you're doing is actually um like not only safe but it's impactful that you know there will be buy into this yeah no for sure it's, it's such a great question and it kind of ties into those kind of making sure that those three themes that i talked about before are working together and talking to each other so making sure that when you're developing your technology you've got business input to say, what is the customer looking for? What are our needs? And making sure that you're, you're kind of sticking to that as you progress, you don't kind of diverge off, off in a different path. And then at the same time, you know, working on the policy side. So, okay, right, we've got this technology. How can that bring value? But how can we, you know, uh, create confidence in, you know, using these new services that haven't mm-hmm. been used before? Um, you know, both with governments in terms of licensing those things, so allowing them to be done in the first place, and also making customers more comfortable with those services as well. So uh, I think a lot of it is making sure that each of the pieces of the moving part are kind of into each other and you keep heading in the same direction. Right. And just a quick follow up to that is so like my background's in healthcare, right? And it is an, in- an industry that historically has moved at snail-like paces you know it seems to be largely ossified like moving nowhere like inches at a time and I'm just curious like from at least like from the private sector within space like how fast are things moving for you guys? Uh, yeah it's a good question I have very little knowledge of the healthcare sector. So oh I'm- not necessarily for like the healthcare side just because I know that there's a lot of policy involved in it too right and like Right. There yeah, has gotcha. to be this balance between policy and innovation and entrepreneurship. Like if there's mm-hmm. too much regulation, innovation tends to be stifled. I'm yeah. just curious, like how fast is it moving, at least within the private sector there? Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know what? I think it's moving very fast in a lot of ways. And I think that's mm. great. And I, um, you know, there's a huge amount of progress. And there's also a huge amount of change that we're seeing in the mm-hmm. space industry and how space is being used, right? Um. And I think, to be honest, we're probably in a phase a little bit of like catch up 
from the regulatory and the policy side where there's been a huge amount of technology innovation and in, in some ways there's you know a lot to be done on the on the policy front in terms of how do we you know how do we work in this new environment if we're going to have 10,000 operational satellites in low earth orbit how are we going to make sure that they are keeping out of the way of each other you know th those are still things we need to figure out so uh, mm -hmm. there's lots, lots more to keep us busy that's for sure mm -hmm. building off that question that's something I'm, I'm actually super interested in obviously i work for spacex so uh, privatization enabled SpaceX to become what it is today, right? Um, but one thing I'm a little interested in, and you mentioned we are kind of playing that catch up with regulation and policy. Um, space used to be a government organization. Space used to be a government-led and directed initiative, right? Um, NASA funding in 1976 was 1% of GDP, uh, and it's gone to you know 0.5% in 2013 and, and getting even lower, right? So uh, my question to you is, do you think privatization has been overall good or bad for the space industry? Um, and depending on your answer, like why, why has it, um, why has it been good or bad? And how do you think that'll change, uh, you know, as we get more buy-in from governments with policy catching up to, to, um, the innovation happening? Yeah. Uh, great question. I think overall it's been overwhelmingly good, right? There are, there are services that private companies can do, um, at a scale and a pace, that we haven't ever seen before, you know, and, and that's incredibly exciting, you know. So I'm thinking, you know, there's so many companies that you could pick out in terms of, you know, uh, private company success stories in, in the space industry, you know. Um, one, I'll just give an example, is Planet, you know. So they're a Earth observation constellation company, and they can now image the entire world every single day and provide Earth observation services that support with disaster management or, you know, um, political crises, or there's, there's not a day goes by where I don't see th their images in the news having impact. And so uh, I, I think there's, there's a huge amount that, you know, private companies can do using space to make the world a better place. Um, I, I think the, the only kind of drawback there is just making sure that we're um, aware of the environment that we're operating in as well. And we're not kind of compromising that by, by running before we can walk. Mm -hmm. And so I guess further building off of that, like what does the, I'm sure this is something you've thought about a lot um, as someone working kind of within the uh, like business side of space, but like, what does that future space economy look like? You know, like we like to kind of butt heads about it, talk about it. Uh, I think we've mentioned before that crypto seems like it could be the future space currency that exists there, but in your view, like, what does that really look like? Yeah, so for me, what, what gets me kind of excited about thinking about the future of the space industry is kind of, in a way, space becoming just a new place that you can do business, you know, um, it's a new environment in which you can operate. And that opens up so many exciting possibilities, right, because, you know, you're no longer constrained by gravity. What does that mean for manufacturing? You know, what new, you know, proteins can you create what new you know fiber optic cables can you create in a low gravity environment that you wouldn't have been able to consider before um so, so i think that there's a lot of really exciting opportunities there in terms of making use of that that new platform that we now have and that really comes from developing the infrastructure that we have so instead of having a kind of throwaway culture in space where you know you launch you launch one rocket and you have one satellite and it does its job and then that's it. You know, 
thinking about how we can have a more sustainable economy in space itself you know so you have reusable rockets you have refuelable satellites you can you know move things out of the way when you need to you can upgrade certain parts of the satellite rather than throwing the whole thing away um, I think when we get to that kind of more um, in orbit economy and ecosystem um, that is going to really transform how we can use space and, and where we'll go next mm-hmm. so it's almost like the space industry is going to be a catalyst for so many different other industries like manufacturing biology uh, you know, laboratories, like so many different things are going to be kind of like spurred on by this. So it's, it's really interesting how almost there's a lot of risk and uncertainty too, because we don't know so much. And I know that, you know, you're involved in like credit risk and like as your time as a, as a businesswoman, like you're really involved in like hedging risks and things like that. So I'm curious to know, like, how have those like methodologies of understanding risk and uncertainty translated into a field where there's so much risk and uncertainty, like no one knows it's going to happen. Like, how do you kind of make use or work around that uncertainty um, in, in your job? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I have to say, when I when I was thinking about leaving the bank and moving into the space industry, I was like, oh, you know, I've wasted four years of my life. There's no way I'm going to use any of these skills or knowledge again. And you know what? Actually, it's been incredibly useful because there's a lot of things that I learned from working in finance that I still use in my day job, right? So like you said, understanding and managing risk, that is a really key one. Um, and also kind of thinking about the ecosystem and how it fits together and the incentives that different, uh, you know, uh, players have in the game, right? So one of the things I used to do in finance was work on regulatory arbitrage. So basically what that means is you set up one rule. What does that actually mean? How do banks operate and react to that rule? And often there are unintended consequences. So, you know, you patch up one hole and you realize that you've actually created an issue over here. So making sure that you're actually, you know, what you're trying to manage is, you know, the end result is what you actually want it to be. Um, And I think that's really interesting when we think about space policy as well, because again, we're in this area of kind of thinking about say space sustainability and there's a lot of ideas in terms of how we can make more, you know, uh, prudent rules about operating in space. But we've got to make sure that we're not inadvertently, you know, creating, uh, you know, incentives that make things worse or, you know, turn out in a way that we might not have anticipated. So, um, yeah, there's more links than I than I was aware of at the time, for sure. It's good to hear. I, I think it's really valuable to have that perspective because, you know, space needs those perspectives. Space needs that understanding. Um, on that note of incentives and liability, one thing I have always want, like wondered about is, you know, let's say we do have a Martian colony or a colony on anywhere else. How would government work on the colony? Would they be part of the UN? Would they have the right to self-govern? I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Like if there was a Martian colony, do you think they should have their own government or do you think there should be like sort of like an international organization that kind of directs them? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure if I have the answer, but I will give a plug for The Expanse. I don't know if you guys have watched it, but like to me, that is such a good show in terms of playing out the politics of, you know, human, you know, expansion through the solar system because it kind of explores a lot of those issues, right? You're going to have those tensions between Martians and Earthers and Belters further further afield, right? And so um, I... Yeah, I think The Expanse does a really good job of like thinking through those political aspects in a very kind of realistic way and kind of exploring what that looks like. So I'll I'll copy their answer. I guess (laughs) it might be another example of life imitating art, right? Maybe like they did pave the way there for that. 
Now, I, I just to backtrack a bit, I'm just like in hearing you speak about some of these things and being in an industry where quite literally people are making moonshots, right? Like how much just conventional knowledge really apply? Like how much can you really apply conventional risk management techniques to an industry where, you know, like there's, you're kind of, you're really surrounded by out of the box thinkers and people that are doing things on incredible scales and magnitudes. Yeah, that is, that is a really great question. And I think my answer would be that um, actually there's a lot that space can learn from other industries. And my personal view is, is, is that sometimes the space industry likes to think that it's special, right? You know, we do these really advanced, cool things and, right. you know, oh, you know, let's figure it all out on ourselves, by ourselves. And, you know, in reality, like, sure, you know, space industry is doing incredibly challenging things, you know, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, mm-hmm. But there are other industries that are doing crazy technology things as well. You know, like imagine like an oil rig, you know, built off the coast of the sea, you know, in the middle of the ocean. Like it, there crazy. are incredibly challenging like things on earth as well, right? And so sometimes with space, we think, oh, you know, we've, we've got to figure it all out for ourselves. But often I think there's a huge host of lessons that we can learn from more developed industries, you know, on earth as well. And so that's actually something we've, we've been looking at at Astroscale is when we're thinking about sustainability of the space environment, what can we learn from other industries on earth that have already done the thinking in terms of, of sustainability of the earth environment and how can we use those lessons and going back to your question those risk management techniques to help some solve some of the problems that are still unresolved in space yeah part of the reason why i really love that point is because not even just like for space but i think we as humans grapple with this hubris like we are this exceptionally intelligent and unique species like we like the universe is created for us but uh, there, I, I, I encountered this website like not too long ago. I think it was called Ask Nature. And it's basically like you can just um, search up random problems like oh, problem of traffic or you can't keep your coffee warm in the morning, something like that, right? There are X number of different ways that nature has already solved many of the problems that we're grappling with, right? Like I saw that there was a new cooling system designed by uh, informed by the way that camels keep themselves cool in the desert. Um, a new te- uh, telescope technology built off of the understanding of how like moths eyes work. Like it's just crazy how nature has parsimoniously already solved so many problems that we can learn from uh, in those instances as well. Right. And I guess this is just another example of how this can be copied onto that. Yeah, for sure. And I think that that kind of comes down to, you know, what is innovation, right? It's not necessarily something that is completely different to anything that anyone has ever done before. It's for it's about seeing something being done over here, and seeing your problem that's over here, and thinking, ha, huh, okay, I'm going to connect these in a way that have ne- they've never been connected before. So it's often mm-hmm. like the innovation is linking things that haven't been linked before as much as it is kind of creating things from scratch, if that makes sense. Yeah. So what have been the the most surprising things you've linked to the space industry? And like, what are some of those lessons? Let's dive deep. Um, what are um, most surprising links? Okay. Yeah. So the, the, the most surprising link for me was how I got into Caltech. And I don't know the answer of like how, you know, how they made this decision. Still to this day, I'm dumbfounded. But, but anyway, <laughs> I, 
I was writing my personal statement, you know, and I was like, oh gosh, you know, I've worked for a bank for four years. How am I going to convince them that I can do planetary science research, right? And um, I went to a conference and this, again, was while I was still working in the bank. I went to uh, California for a week to go to an exoplanet conference all about statistics and how you use statistics to um, detect and characterize exoplanets. And mm-hmm. I was kind of like, well, this sounds interesting. I'll just go and see what it's like, you know. And, you know, I spent the week kind of dumbfounded because I was like, wow, all these statistical models that these exoplanet astronomers are using to find planets around other stars, a lot of these techniques are being used in finance to manage risk in the financial system. You know, mm-hmm. it's Monte Carlo simulations. It's all these, you know, statistical methods. And I was like, huh, actually, like, I know something about this. And, and, and it was kind of somehow I made that very tenuous, but just about their link between those two <laughs> things to, to demonstrate I had some of the skills that they were looking for. Um, so, yeah, that, that, was, that was another kind of light bulb moment for me, which was like, huh this and this, maybe they're connected in some way. Yeah, does that, I I don't know if this is in any way true, but like, does it make stats maybe, or at least in the conversation you had with other people, does it make stats more interesting for people when they know that it's being applied for understanding, you know, other planets, just the nature of space rather than just applying it to financial models? Yeah, I guess so, right? And it's one of those things I think people often like complain about when they study maths at school, right? It's like, oh, I'm just... Now, when am I ever going to use a cosine? When am I ever <laughs> going to use this, you know, triangle rule or whatever it is? And, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's there's probably a, a missing link there in terms of education of showing what that math can be used for and some of the kind of exciting applications. Um, because, yeah, a lot of the magic is, you know, seeing how it can be used in, you know, really cool things like detecting planets around other stars. Yeah, definitely. I, I always see these tweets on Twitter that are like, oh, uh, it's been another two years and I still have never used the Pythagorean theorem. And, and it's funny, you know, it's a funny tweet to, to send out, but mass is so fundamental to everything, you know, mm-hmm. from your smartphone, from uh, the route you take on Google Maps, like everything depends on like those, those theorems and, and those applications. So I think there's definitely a, a missing link between the impact that some of these concepts have and the educational space. So centering on that, I think there's also a missing link between the excitement that, you know, exists in the space industry and like that excitement translating to the younger generations and so we recently had a conversation with uh the dean of engineering mcmaster uh and we were talking and and he grew up sort of in in the original space station space race generation right uh he he was like a teenager in the 60s he got to see the space race from start to finish uh so many exciting developments happening and i think there was a bit of a lull like since then and it's picking up again now um but you know, on that note, what kind of advice do you have for a young person like interested in space, especially being part of SGAC? How can they get really involved and, and kind of pursue their passions in space? Yeah, for sure. Uh, so my first piece of advice would be to, to join SGAC, for sure. Get involved, <laughs> like find people who share your passion. Um, and then the like, like kind of building on that, get involved, right? You know, find what it is that you like about space and I think the the main piece of encouragement I have is, you know, there is, it's really, it's cliche, but there is a place in space for for everyone in terms of, you know, what you want to do. You know, we need people who are 
you know, who are great project managers. We need people who can think from a business perspective, who can think technically. We need scientists. We need lawyers. We need people who can, be, can communicate all those ideas to a whole range of audiences. We need people who can recruit people in to come into the space industry. You know, I, I could go on, right? So I think, you know, finding, you know, what it is that you want to do in the space industry. And then, you know, I, I don't, I always think this, you know, this, there's something amazing about the space sector and how passionate everyone seems to be about it. Like, that's just amazing, right? I, I always wonder if like other industries have this, you know, like are there, you know, is there a podcast about, you know, uh, young professionals in the insurance industry and how much they <laughs> love insuring things. I like maybe insurance is the best example. <laughs> uh, you know what? I actually really enjoy like space insurance is a really fascinating topic. No so way. bad example. But um but do you know what I mean? There's there's something about space that kind of really gets people up in the morning. And mm-hmm. I, I think kind of staying true to that and, and following it through is is um is gonna set you up for a very rewarding career. Wait, so what are people insuring in space? Oh, man. Okay, so, you know, firstly, insuring rockets, right? So mm-hmm. you insure a rocket to make sure that it doesn't, um, you know, blow up on the launch pad and, you know, you can pay to recover your, your payload. Um, some satellites are insured in orbit as well. So if your satellite fails in orbit, you can get a payout to cover the lost revenue or to fill your replacement. Um, and then some come. Com- countries, UK included, require third-party liability insurance for satellites in space. So in the same way that you need insurance on your car to make sure that if you crash into someone, you, you know, the insurance will pay out and, and do clean up, clean up the mess. Um, same thing in space. So hmm. there's this whole wonderful world of space insurance that, you know, you would wow. never thought about. That's fascinating. I can't I imagine how much no these idea. insurance payouts must be. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I just bought my first car and I, I just got car insurance for the first time and deductibles and stuff like that. I was like dumbfounded. Like it's such a huge world. And I can only imagine like the complexity that space adds on to that with, you know, space debris and things like that. It must be incredible. Yeah. And it's, it's a kind of a funny one because, you know, kind of going back to those tenuous links between things, you know, one of the things I spend a lot of time on is thinking about, you know, how do you, how do you sell debris removal services? How do you, you know, get people to pay to clean up? And, you know, one of the things we've been looking at is, you know, okay, are there ways you can insure this? So in the same way that, you know, you, you cover your car with car insurance, you know, could you have some kind of insurance package that, you know, means that you're covered and your space debris is cleaned up at the end, you know? So there's, again, there's things you can learn from these industries and apply it to space to, to kind of solve some of those challenges. Yeah. There, I mean, so it seems like for a couple of problems that exist, um, in the world today that plague not only one nation, but just, you know, the entire world, it feels like a lot of the time people just wait for an entrepreneur to show up that has this innovative new solution to solve some of the problems that exist. Cause I mean, government bodies just move incredibly slow, or even if they say they're going to do something, it seems like they don't always deliver on those promises. Right. Is that something that might be translated into space as well. Cause like even just taking the issue of space debris, right? Like let's narrow down, uh, zoom in on that a bit. Should there, like, should governments take responsibility for the debris that they're throwing up into space? Or again, like, is this just going to be another one of those things where can we wait till the next Elon Musk comes along to build this new space arm that just grabs space debris out and then governments will contract them to come along and solve the problem that exists up there. 
Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So I think one of the challenges we have with space debris at the moment is there's, well, good news, we're, there's growing awareness. People are starting to recognize that this is a problem we need to do something about. We're still a little bit behind in terms of the taking action stage, right? And I think we're kind of at this point where there's a little bit of a chicken and egg where you kind of want, you know, government wants to see the technology solutions. So commercial companies able to solve this problem um, and, and commercial companies to some extent you know, want to see that government support before they commit to investing in the mm -hmm. technology, right? And so that's really where, where where Astroscale is trying to break that cycle and work on the policy front as much as the technology front. So we can say, right, you know, we're commercializing this technology, we're proving that it's safe to do, and at the same time working, you know, with governments and space agencies to really incentivize that that responsive use of space. So it's um so yeah, short mm -hmm. answer. There's a uh, yeah, it's an interesting time, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I have a follow-up question. Oh, sorry, Damon. Go ahead. No, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, so I was going to say I have a follow-up question on that, and I know that space debris in particular, I mean, as with a number of other space issues, is quite divided in the inter international community um, because you know the U.S., for example, produces most of the space debris uh, because they just send the most rockets out, and when when it's a new country, kind of you know. Um, sending a rocket out, it's kind of not even their responsibility, right? And then there's a whole issue with China who, who blew up uh, the rocket in and LEO, I believe. And then, you know, 10,000 pieces of debris came out of that. So uh, the question is, do you think there'll be more international unity in the space field in the future? Or do you think it'll remain as divided as it was kind of in the Cold War years? Like, what are we trending to? Are we trending towards that globalization? And do you think that's really important for the industry? Or do you think that healthy competition between those two countries kind of um, helps helps drive forward the space industry? Yeah, great question. So I think the thing about space is, I mean, it's obvious, right, but there's no borders. So there's nothing stopping, you know, a piece of debris that was, you know, originally from a French rocket going and, you know, getting in the way of an American satellite or, you know, pick whatever countries you, you want in that in that scenario, right? So it's something that requires international collaboration because there is no, you know, you can't be like, oh, okay, right, America, you just have this orbit. And Russia, you just have this all bit and that's problem solved, you know, because even if you did that, you'd still have debris decaying and moving through orbits, right? So I think you have to have that international collaboration, at least to some extent. But that doesn't mean that you can't have, you know, responsible nations leading the way and really kind of, you know, holding themselves to a higher standard and then looking at that leadership to kind of bring other countries along, right? So, so I think it, it's kind of a combination of those things. And in terms of looking forward, I'm somewhat optimistic. I think, you know, there's been, uh, you know, there's, there's organizations like the UN's Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. There's an interagency debris committee that includes all of the big countries, including the US and China, and I believe Russia as well. You know, so, so there is that dialogue happening at an international level. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I would say I'm an optimist on that front. Yes, I hope so. Yeah, no, no, people don't always play nice together, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we are getting a little, uh, getting a little close to time, and we want to ensure that we have ample time to ask you our favorite final question that we ask of all our guests. Uh oh, so are you ready, Harriet? Yeah, no okay, yeah. So, uh, yeah, no pressure. But the question is, if there was a billboard that would reach millions, even billions of people, and you could put any one message on that billboard what would it say? Take oh, your time. No. You I'm take glad you gave me 15 minutes to answer this question. I'm going to have to think. 
get fired. Or, oh, you know what? But, you know, it's kind of funny, right? Because in, in a way, with social media, we kind of have that power. Do you know what I mean? Like, you could tweet something oh, yeah. and it could reach millions of people. You just don't know, right? Absolutely. Um, something that I think is really important that I think is somewhat missing, particularly today, is, and it really reflects what we've actually been talking about this whole podcast, is, um, you know, being able to, uh, you know, see things from someone else's perspective and get value from different viewpoints. So I don't really know what that is in terms of like, I don't know if I want to really preach advice in terms of this billboard, but just trying to get people to think a bit more about how we can, you know, learn from other viewpoints and bring in other perspectives, I think is so valuable on so many levels, you know, in terms of, you know, personal relationships, in terms of, you know, uh, work dynamics, in terms of, you know, some of the biggest problems that we have across the world, right, that kind of being able to communicate and understand where someone else is coming from and be able to empathize and respond to that um, is is something that I wish I wish there was more of in the world and I hope that's not mm-hmm. too uh, sentimental oh, oh that's a beautiful message yeah there's no message too sentimental for our billboard where not yeah for sure uh, yeah. follow question on that though so it feels like the world is getting you know if anything more and more divided more and more polarized so how, how do we do that? How do you start integrating those perspectives? It feels like we're almost like recessing back into populism, right? So yeah, how, how do we build that collaborative and, and globalist, you know, ideals? Uh, you know what? I I don't know. I think we have to do it on a number of levels. I mean, if you right? knew, it'd be a billion dollar idea. Right? Well, yeah, sure. exactly. I <laughs> in this mess. Um, no, I, I think it, it's one of those things you have to do it from a grassroots level, but you have to do it top, you know, you need people top down and you need the bottom up approach at the same time, right? And I think in some ways it's it's somewhat cyclical, right? And it, in, a, in a way it's kind of reflective of, uh, you know, kind of big macroeconomic cycles that we're living through, you know? So when, you know, when times are harder, people are pushed to more extremes and, you know, this has certainly been a tough year that has really challenged you know, a lot of things, right, in terms of how people think, how people live, um, and, and how people react. So, um, I, I, yeah, I don't have an answer, but, um, yeah, we could all work towards it, right? For sure. And I, I like the approach, like, it, it kind of speaks to the background that you have with the uh, analyzing it from a macroeconomic scale as well. Like, these, these things don't happen in isolation and they're not just a result of like, you know, one or two people um, who, are, who are demagogues or whatever, right? It's, it's the result of a number of different influences and factors and it's important to take all that into account if you're, if you're trying to solve that problem. Exactly, yeah. And just hearing, you know, it's reassuring hearing that your values are in the right place. So, you know, if you ever end up running for prime minister, you got my vote. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> or president or- of whatever future space or or whatever future space government exists you know yeah president <laughs> or, Mars, right <laughs> or i don't know that that queen's getting kind of old i don't know she doesn't seem to be uh she doesn't seem to be flinching at all though so we'll see that yeah. is in no way a democratic election so uh <laughs> no chance that one. <laughs> it's time for a it's, coup it's funny because actually today is victoria day in canada oh um, it is still celebrate even though it is we are no longer you know, officially under monarch girl, which is, is insane. It's so funny how that exists, but yeah. Yeah. But shout out to the queen. I hope I age as gracefully as she has. For sure. Yeah. Um, Who knew well, the podcast was going to end on that note, right? Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I completely did not left field. 
But thank you so much, Harry, again, for your time today. It has been a beautiful conversation, just hearing way more about the space industry. It's like, I feel like I can never have enough of these conversations. Like, I don't know, it's just there's so much to talk about. And I think just the, the content of this conversation really shows that, you know, this is just a drop in the ocean. There's so It's so far reaching um, and it engages so many different minds, which is why it's important to have that diversity aspect, right? It's a crucible in which creativity is born. So here's the many more of those. And is there any final thoughts or anything you want to plug? Where can people reach you? Oh gosh. Well, firstly, I want to say thank you so much. This has been such a great discussion. I've really enjoyed it. Um, of course. Uh, uh, yeah. Oh gosh. I have nothing to plug. No, just, uh, yeah. Space is awesome. Check out SJC <laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Amazing. Beautiful. Amazing. We'll make sure to link SJC, uh, in the description of the episode, uh, Make sure people know where to reach out and, and apply if they're so interested. And yeah, again, thank you, Harriet, so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure of a conversation. I'm so excited now. I'm I was already really excited to start my internship next week, and now I'm like ten times more excited. So yeah, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, how many of the other interns have spoken to both the co-chairs of SGAC, right? So yeah, exactly. I don't think any of them have. So. <laughs> right. yeah. If you like the episode, follow us on Spotify and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Our website was built by Face Solutions, logo designed by Charmeni, and music by Wonderly Music. Thank you for listening. Think you got it? Nah, we're on the next iteration. <laughs>